Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for April, May and June 2014, titled Christ and His Law. It's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 6 for May 3-9, to Christ's Death and the Law. Sabbath afternoon, May 3. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're about to open your word again for this week, and as we do so, we just want to thank you for all that it brings to us. And as we, this week, look at Christ's death and its relationship to the law, we pray that our questions may be answered, our minds may be illuminated, and our hearts filled with more love and gratitude for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Romans chapter 7, verse 4. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Let's read that again, Romans 7, verse 4. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Romans 7, 4. A woman is driving way over the speed limit. Suddenly, she sees in her rear vision mirror the flashing red and blue lights of a police car, and hears the familiar wail of the siren. She pulls over, grabs her purse, and takes out her driver's license. The police officer approaches, takes her license, and returns to his car. She wonders how much the ticket is going to be. She was way over the limit. She also worries about how she will be able to pay it. A few minutes later, the police officer comes back and says, OK, miss, what we're going to do, so that you don't have to face the penalty of the law again, is abolish the law. You no longer have to worry about the speed limit. As ludicrous as this story is, it's no more so than the theology that teaches that after Jesus died, the law, the Ten Commandments, was abolished. This week, we'll take a look at the death of Jesus and what it means in relation to the law. Sunday, May 4. Dead to the Law. Question. Carefully examine Romans chapter 7 verses 1 to 6 and summarize as well as you can what Paul is saying. Read it carefully, keeping in mind other Bible passages about the law. Beginning at verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives she marries another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren... 
you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that ye may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For, when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. Although some Bible versions incorrectly translate verse 1 to read that the law is binding until death, a literal interpretation is, every living person is under the rule of law. The emphasis is not on the dead, but on the living. The example from marriage demonstrates that any married person who has an intimate relationship with someone other than his or her spouse has broken the law and is guilty of adultery. Only if his or her spouse dies can he or she enter a relationship with another person without violating the law. Also, some argue that this passage shows the death of the law. However, it really shows a person's death to the law through the body of Christ, in verse 4. According to Romans 6.6, the part of the person that dies is the old self. When united to the old self, a person is condemned by the law, and thus trapped in a miserable relationship. We read about that in the rest of uh, chapter 7 of Romans, verses 9 to 11. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. But I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For, apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? After the old self dies, the person is free to enter into a relationship with another, the resurrected Christ, it tells us in verse 4. What Paul is saying is that because law binds every living person, God's law must also govern the new union. However, the fact that the believer is now married to Christ means that the law is no longer an instrument of condemnation. The believer in Jesus is free from the condemnation of the law because he or she is covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Paul is not stating that the Ten Commandments, which define sin, are now abolished. That would be contrary to so much of the Bible, his own writings included. Instead, he is talking about a new relationship one has to the law through faith in Jesus. The law still is binding. It's just that the believer in Jesus, the one who died to self and to sin, the law no longer holds him or her in the grip of condemnation because the person now belongs to another, Jesus. Monday, May 5, 
the law of sin and death. Paul assures the Christian that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8 verses 1 and 2. If we read these verses apart from their immediate context, it would appear that Paul was referring to two opposing laws, the law of life and the law of sin and death. However, the difference is not with the law, but with the individual before and after he or she receives Christ. Question. In what ways does Paul's discussion in Romans 7, 7-13 illustrate the role of of the law. Beginning at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil, desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died, and the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. The function of the law depends on the person with whom it is associated. The same knife, for instance, can be used by a surgeon to heal, or by a murderer to kill. In the same way, a thief who breaks a law to steal someone's purse will stand in a different relationship to the law than will the one whom the law was meant to protect, the owner of the purse. The law itself is described as holy and righteous and good in verse 12, or as the law of sin and death in Romans 8 too. However, in the same way that God's retributive vengeance does not stop him from being a God of love, the law's function as an agent of sin and death does not make it sinful. According to Romans 8 verses 5 to 8, the law is an instrument of sin and death for those who set their minds on the things of the flesh. Let's read that passage. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This describes the person who is still married to the old self and has no apparent desire to sever the relationship and be joined to the resurrected Christ. As a result of the sinful union, the person finds himself or herself at enmity with God and his law, since they are on opposing sides. Paul then emphasizes that it is impossible for the mindset of the flesh 
to submit to God's law or even to please him in Romans 8 verses 7 and 8. This is obviously not a reference to the struggling individual of Romans 7 verses 13 to 25 since that person serves the law of God with my mind in Romans 7:25. Paul is probably referring to those who by their wickedness as it says in Romans 1:18 suppress the truth. It is for these rebels against God's sovereignty that the law becomes an instrument of sin and death, as we read in Romans 2.12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So to finish the day, a simple question. How do you relate to the law when you violate it? Tuesday, May 6, The Power of the Law Question. According to Romans chapter 4, verse 15, chapter 5, verse 13, and chapter 7, verse 7, what is the function of the law? Also, what does Romans 7, 8 to 11 say about the effect that the law has on the person who violates it? Well, first of all, Romans 4.15, because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. And Romans 5.13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. And Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. And then verses 8 to 11. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Every instrument has its purpose. Just as a key is used for opening a lock or a knife is used for cutting, so the law is used to define sin. Had it not been for God's law, there would be no absolute method of knowing what actions were acceptable or unacceptable to him. And though sin cannot exist without the law, Paul makes it clear that the law is not a willing partner with sin. In Romans 7.13, Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, working death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And that's Romans 7.13 from the New Revised Standard Version. Question. In what ways do the above texts help to shed light on 1 Corinthians 15 verses 54 to 58? 
So, when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. If read in isolation, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 54 to 58 would appear to promote a negative view of God's law. Paul's point, however, is that the law empowers sin only because it defines what sin is. And of course, as it says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Had it not been for the law, there would be no death, because it would be impossible to define sin. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's purpose is not to demonize the law, but to demonstrate how, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, all who believe can experience victory over death, a death that comes because of violation of the law. And so to finish today, when was the last time that someone sinned against you? That is, the last time that someone violated God's law in a way that hurt you. How does such an experience help you to understand why the belief that states that God's law was abolished after the cross is so wrong? Wednesday, May 7, The Impotent Law Though in one sense, as we saw, the law empowers sin, in another real way, the law is terribly impotent. How can the same object be both powerful and impotent at the same time? Here again, the difference lies not in the law, but in the person. For the one who discovers that he is a sinner the law forces him to acknowledge that he is going against God's will and is consequently on a path to death. Upon discovering his sinfulness, the sinner may decide to follow the law to the letter. However, the fact that he has already sinned has made him a candidate for death. Question. Read Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, Romans 8, 3 and Galatians 3, 21. What do they tell us about the law and salvation? First of all, Acts thirteen thirty-eight to 39. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. And Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. 
Some people believe that strict adherence to the law will grant salvation. But this is not a biblical teaching. The law defines sin. In Romans 7.7, it does not forgive it. In Galatians 2.21, hence Paul remarks that the same law that empowers sin is also weak in Romans 8.3. It is able to convict the sinner of sins, but cannot make the sinner righteous. A mirror can show us our faults. It just can't fix them. As Ellen White wrote in The Signs of the Times, November 10, 1890, The law cannot save those whom it condemns. It cannot rescue the perishing. When we fully consider the purpose of the law it is easier to understand why Jesus became the atoning sacrifice for the human race. The death of Jesus placed formerly sinful human beings in a right relationship with God and with his holy and righteous and good law as expressed in Romans 7.12. At the same time, too, his death showed us the futility of salvation by keeping the law. After all, if obedience to the law could save us, Jesus would not have had to die in our place. The fact that he did reveals that obedience to the law could not save us. We needed something much more drastic. And so to finish today, though we are promised again and again the power to obey God's law, why is this obedience not enough to secure our salvation? In one sense, the answer shouldn't be that difficult. Look at yourself and your law-keeping. If your salvation depended on your obedience, how much hope would you have? Thursday, May 8, The Curse of the Law Our text for today is Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Question What do the following texts tell us about human nature? How do we see the reality of this truth every day? First of all, Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And the famous one, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. With the exception of Christ, 
all human beings have a common experience in that all have been infected by Adam's sin. Consequently, no natural person can ever claim to be fully righteous. There are some, such as Elijah and Enoch, who lived exceptionally close to God, but no one has been able to live a completely blameless life. Indeed, it is with this reality in mind that Paul declares in Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. The truth is, the law demands total and complete conformity, and who has ever always given that except Jesus? Question. How does Romans 6.23 help to define what the curse of the law means? Also look at Genesis 2.17 and Ezekiel 18.4. Well, first of all, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Genesis 2.17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Ezekiel 18, verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Everyone is naturally under the curse of the law. Because the law has no margin for error, it is impossible for a person to correct a past sin. Consequently, death is the individual's fate. James paints an even bleaker picture by reminding us that transgression in one area of the law is just as bad as transgression in all areas, in James 2.10. The wages of sin is death, and death has no proportions. When we recognize the helpless condition of those under the curse, it is easier to appreciate the extent of God's love. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. Through his death, as it says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so to finish today, think about what Paul said in Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. This is because the law can't save us. Thus, we are cursed with death. How can acknowledging this truth help us to better appreciate what we have been given in Jesus? In what ways do we manifest such appreciation in our lives? And we'll finish with 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Friday, May 9 from the book The Desire of Ages, page 762, we read, The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character, and this man has not to give. 
He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to the earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive him. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a godly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him who believeth in Jesus. Romans 3.26 End of quote. In summary, the death of Jesus powerfully demonstrated the permanence of God's law. When our first parents sinned, God could have abolished his laws and taken away the penalties for violation. However, this would have meant a miserable existence in a lawless society for the earth's inhabitants. Instead, God chose to send his Son as a substitute for us, in that he received the just penalty for sin as required by the law on behalf of all people. Through Jesus' death, the entire race stands in a new relationship to God. This means that any one of us, through faith in Jesus, can have our sins forgiven and stand perfect in God's sight. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. Many religions teach that at the end of a person's life, God balances the person's good deeds against the bad deeds before determining whether that person will be rewarded in the afterlife. What is so terribly wrong with this kind of thinking? 2. Jesus, the one who was equal to God, died for our sins. If we think that obedience to the law can somehow add to that, in terms of saving us, what does this say about the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice? 3. What are some other reasons why the belief that states that God's law was abolished after the cross is false? When people say that, what do they really mean was abolished? That is, what commandment do they think was abolished? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled A New Life. Ten-year-old Moses stared out the aeroplane window at the large city below. This would be his new home. What will it be like to live in the United States? Moses wondered. Will I make friends here? Will I even be able to talk to them? For as long as Moses could remember, his family had lived in one refugee camp after another in Central Africa. His home had been a plastic tarp held up by sticks. When it rained, everything got wet, and there seldom was enough food to eat or clean water to drink. One day Moses' father told the family, Soon we will leave this camp for a new home in the United States. The family arrived in their new home and settled into an apartment. On the first day of school Moses felt lost. He couldn't find his class and couldn't speak English to ask for help. 
Finally, someone took him to his class. Moses studied hard and soon could speak enough English to talk to his classmates. He began telling his new friends that Jesus loves them. Some listened, but others ignored him. His father and mother studied English so they could find work. Everything seemed so hard. They struggled to find a grocery store and a church. Riding the bus was difficult until they could speak the language. After months of studying and searching for work, Moses' father found a job. Then, one day, Moses' father stumbled into the apartment, blood spattered on his face and clothes. Some teenagers don't want us here, he said. One of them hit me with a rock. His father lost eyesight in the injured eye, but he refused to be angry. We can't be angry when someone hurts us. We must forgive them and pray for them. Moses knew that his father was right, but it was still hard to forgive the teens who had hurt his father. The family has found a different place to live, and church members are helping to pay the children's tuition so they can study in a Seventh-day Adventist school. Moses wants to be a pastor, as his grandfather in Africa was. He shares God's love with others and offers to study the Bible with them so they will learn to love God too. God has been with my family through hard times, he says. He will never leave us. A recent 13th Sabbath offering is helping to reach millions of refugees in North America with the message of God's love. Thank you for reaching out to the world by reaching the world in North America. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful. <laughs>